1 Peter chapter 2. Last week we talked about politics. So we talked about a non-controversial subject, right? In this election year, nobody's concerned about that. We talked about politics. Next week we're going to talk about wives submitting to their husbands. So again, nothing real controversial happening. And tonight we're going to talk about probably one of the most controversial things in the Bible because of what some people think this section does endorse. And we'll talk through that a little bit. We have to remind ourselves kind of a couple of things when we think about the passage we're going to look at tonight. First of all, we have to remind ourselves where we are in First Peter. And in First Peter, he has established what God has done for us, the inheritance we have, and the fact that our lives are built on serving here and now, but always aware of the then and there. Always aware of what is coming to us. Knowing that we can suffer through absolutely anything because of the reward that we have coming. And, and he, so he talks to people that are in severe persecution. When we talked about last week, he talks about honoring and submitting yourself to the authority of an emperor who is burning Christians at the stake. And so he says it doesn't matter what the earthly leader is doing. First of all, he's always under the authority of God. And if you've submitted to the Lord, then you ought to be able to submit to anyone. And so we have to remember that kind of in the context of what's happening here. Because his point is, he's going to give a list of things that according to the world, you don't necessarily would look at and go, especially in our day and time, well, that's something you have to submit to. And he says it's not because of necessarily the earthly authority they have, it's because you've submitted to the heavenly authority that you can then submit yourself to the earthly authority. And he's going to talk about in relationship to government. He's going to talk about in relationship to those that are in authority over us. He's going to talk about in relationship to families. He's going to talk about in relationship to churches. Submitting to authority is not cowering down or allowing yourself to be stepped on or run over or taken advantage of. That submitting ourselves is a way to bring ourselves again under the authority of God. And so we have to remember that that's the whole section. We also have to remember that he's writing to people he's telling them to submit to. And so we're going to have in this where he says, submit then slaves to your masters. Okay? We're going to talk about those terms in a minute. But we have to understand, he's not writing a political advocacy column for the New York Times about whether or not slavery is acceptable. He's writing to people who find themselves in that situation already and telling them how to act. It wouldn't have mattered what they thought of slavery. Just to be honest in this time, they were slaves. And he's telling them how to act in that. Now we're going to talk about the difference there. When I say the word slaves, what do you think of? So what, I mean, what does that mean? When, when I say slavery or slaves, what, is, what comes into your mind? Under someone's control, bondage. I pastored for six years in Ripley, Tennessee. Ripley is a small town over in the corner of West Tennessee in between the metropolis of Dyersburg and the small city of Memphis, right? And so it's right there on the Mississippi River kind of area. And Ripley is the county seat of Lauderdale County. 
And right next to Ripley is a small town called Henning. Does anybody know who's from Henning? Alex Haley. Okay, what did Alex Haley write? Roots. Okay, I mean, I would sometimes go visiting and have to, uh, my directions would include turn onto Chicken George Highway. All right, I mean, there's a Chicken George Highway that runs from Ripley to Henning. All right, one of the funeral homes was right before it turned into Chicken George Highway, but it was on that road. Um, and so for many Americans, especially Americans a little older than me, Roots came out when I was too young to watch. Okay? I, I, I've seen it, but not when it came out. For a lot of Americans, though, when you say slavery, images like that are what come to mind. Okay? LeVar Burton, who I know from Reading Rainbow, but was in Roots, right? Those images of him tied to a post, getting beaten. When I was growing up, there was a miniseries called North and South that I watched, and I remember very vividly kind of the depictions there. And so those are our views. And so when we hear Peter not a saying, even though slavery is really, really, really wrong, you need to submit to your masters, we wonder, is he endorsing it? In fact... During the 1800s, the passage we're going to read in just a minute was one of the most used passages to defend slavery. They said, even look, Peter says it's all right. Well, Peter didn't say it's all right. He's writing to the slaves. What you also have to understand, and this is important to understand before we read, we think of, it's so hard for us to conceptualize anything but our own experience. And we think, well, why didn't Peter, the leader of those apostles, get an advocacy plan and figure out how to stop slavery in the Roman world? Because today, we talk about speaking up for our rights, voting your rights, voting what you believe, values voters, the moral majority... The, the evangelical block that swept George W. Bush to office several years ago because they turned out to vote and said, we don't want the country like this anymore, and the courting of the evangelical vote, and Christian, all that. But you have to remember, when Peter's writing, they were a disenfranchised, small group of a sect or a cult that nobody cared about, except for people that realized they weren't worshiping the way they wanted them to. And so for them, there was no way they could make any noise. And it would be meaningful. So Peter, in writing to them, sees no good in saying, get together with some of your fellow slaves and overthrow this system. This is what he does say. Starting in verse 18. Household slaves. And that is the term used there. It's not the normal term for just... Slaves, it's household slaves. Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel, for it brings favor if, because of the conscience towards God, someone endures grief for suffering unjustly. What credit is there if you endure when you sin and are beaten? But when you do good and suffer, if you endure, it brings favor with God. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he did not threaten, 
but committed himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. So having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounding, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. We're going to look, first of all, at the command. Then we're going to look at the motivation for the command. And then we're going to look at the example. All right? And here's the command. And you can't take it any other way than this. Slaves, submit to your master. There, there's no way to reread that. There's no way to rewrite that. There's no way to get around that. And listen, that's okay. Because he's writing again to the slave. And what he basically is saying to them is, don't wait for your position to change to begin to serve the Lord. It's kind of like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul's writing to people that are saying, hey, listen, I've gotten saved, and my husband or my wife is not saved. What do I need to do? Do I need to leave them so I can really pursue the Lord? And Paul says, listen, if you're married, stay married. If you're not married, stay not married. Don't wait for your position to change to serve the Lord. If you're a wife with a husband who's not a believer, don't say, I'm going to wait till my husband becomes a believer to start living for the Lord. Start doing it now. If I'm a wife with a husband who's not a believer, don't say, I've got to leave him to start living for the Lord. The same is true for the slaves. Just because your position in Christ and eternity changed doesn't mean that you can skirt off the responsibilities of your the here and now. It doesn't mean that you can run away from that. Freedom in Christ, according to Peter here, doesn't necessarily mean immediate freedom from your earthly circumstances. But we must live for the Lord in the midst of that. In fact, there's a bad translation, I think, in the Holman Christian Standard in the NIV, I'm sure they would disagree with me, and there are scholars much more than I am, but I think it means something different than what they intended to say here. In mine, it says in verse, 13, in verse 18, Household slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. So you may have a different translation there, or say it a little differently. Uh, in fear, with all fear, okay? The actual word is fear, but here's what's important about that. The word that he uses there, I mean, it's phobos, phobia, phobia. The word that he uses there in the rest of First Peter, every time he uses it, it means fear of the Lord. And so I think it's better to read it with a fuller reading because it helps you understand. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters in all respect to the Lord. That's a different reading, Okay. It means because you are respecting and under the authority of God, it gives you the ability to come under the authority of your master. And the idea there is that you're really serving the Lord when you do that. It's like the Colossians passage that says, whatever you do, do it with all you've got, as if unto the Lord. That's what he's saying here. You're submitting not just because of that master, but because of the Lord. He goes on to say, not only to the good and gentle, but also the cruel. And this is where it gets a little more difficult. The point he's making is, you cannot use as an excuse, he's a cruel master to not do what you're supposed to do. 
you can't say, in other words, boy, I've got a really good master, and so I'll do whatever he says. And then a year later, well, he's done some bad stuff. He's an evil man. I will not do anything for him. In our day, and most people in our day, and we'll talk about one that's a little more applicable in a minute, take this slave kind of discussion to talk about your working environment. And the idea, don't ask Deborah about that correlation, all right? The idea is that just because you have an evil boss doesn't mean you don't do your job. Okay? Right, Deborah? Do we deal with that every day, all right? But you know what I mean? I mean, sometimes people will say, well, he's such a terrible person. I'm not going to do... I mean, have you all seen 9 to 5? Y'all seen that movie, Dolly Parton, right? Then they, don't they poison him or something in there? Yeah. I, I, you know, I need a cupbearer to the pastor. Anybody want to be that? The idea is just because he is bad doesn't dismiss you from doing your work as if for the Lord. Okay? And so that's what he's telling the slaves. If you've got a good one, if you've got a bad one. Now, I think he doesn't mean if they ask you to do something immoral or unjust or against God, that doesn't mean you just go along. What it means is you can't use the excuse, he's an unbeliever, so I no longer have to listen to him. Because my allegiance is with the Lord now. Yes, but you're under the Lord's authority and under his. Same thing with the government. Just because we have a president I don't like doesn't mean I disobey the laws. You come under the authority of God. And that's what he says, do that. And then he says, the reason to do that, verse 19, for it brings favor if, because of conscience towards God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. There's some key words there, and we'll get to the, the reward in a minute. Because of our commitment to the Lord. It's not just because we suffer because we do a bad job or we're not doing things right or we have our own complex about it. It's because of our our belief and our commitment to the Lord that we unjustly suffer. For what credit is there if you endure when you sin or are beaten? But when you do good and suffer, if you endure, it brings favor with God. I believe that Scripture teaches beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen? But I also believe Scripture teaches that when we get to the sweet by and by, there will be levels of reward for the way that we have been faithful in our service of the Lord here. Now, I've said this before. I don't think that means anybody's going to get to heaven and be disappointed. Okay? You're not going to look at your neighbor and go, man, I wish I had what they had. Okay? It's not like my boys, my boys are Lego nuts. All right? They love Legos. And Lego has devised this ingenious thing called minifigures. And it's just the Lego men. You know, used to the Lego men were throwaway parts of the sets. Now they design them. And they put them in little packages and sell them for $3 or $4 each and you can't tell which one you're getting. They started with on Eli's 6th birthday was series 1. They're at series 8. And there are about 20 in each series. Quick math, 160 of these dudes have been going around. We have not bought them all. 
but on occasion we'll get, you know, something small. You're looking to reward the kids or they're at the store and you realize, you know, it's like the persistent widow, you know, just, Dad, what am I getting, what am I getting? And well, it was three bucks, I got three dollars of change in my pocket. All right, we can do that. But what's always interesting is you don't know what you're getting. And so we, a few weeks ago we got these from the previous, uh, I think it was even six. We opened it up and they had all wanted the boxer. And it was a cool little boxer. It had the little red, I mean, it was a little Lego, you know, so they're kind of cute. It had the red boxing cap on, big red boxing gloves, and they could pose them. Luke opens his up. First thing he pulls out is the boxer. Eli opens his. It's a female athletic trainer. You don't know what you're getting. You just hand them to them. Eli was less than excited about his reward and thoroughly jealous of Luke's, right? Now, I know your kids have never reacted in getting anything and being jealous of the other. I don't think that's what heaven's going to be like. I don't think anybody's going to be man, look at what, look at my house. I can't believe Kathy Decker got that house. And I got this one. But I do think there's level of rewards. And here's what I think. I don't think Scripture teaches that one of the things that builds your rewards in heaven is suffering for the Lord in a way that glorifies Him. And that is about as foreign to the American mind as anything you can imagine. You know what the prosperity gospel is, right? Health, wealth, fame, fortune. Send me a hundred, God will give you a thousand. Just believe enough and it will be given unto you. Your best life now. Every day of Friday. It's interesting that sometimes those people that preach that, and they're all over TV, and some of you like them, and I'm about to make you mad, but that's okay. I mean, you know, Joel Osteen will smile and tell you how great life will be if you just have enough faith and just believe it. The moment you speak it, it becomes part of it. It becomes reality when the words come out of your mouth because you're speaking it into existence. Joyce Myers Ministries, very positive, will tell you that she's moved a little bit away from some of the health and wealth stuff. John Hagee, when he's not telling you about the end of the world, will talk to you about that. Perry Stone, manna from heaven. I watch him sometimes too, just to know what not just to know what I don't need to preach, right? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> not good ones. Here's the thing that's interesting though is they don't know how to, because there have been some preachers in the past that have done that, they don't know how to handle it when trouble comes in their own life. And it's not biblical at all. In fact, we're going to read in a minute, who's our example? Jesus. Jesus wasn't health and wealth. He was homeless. Died naked on a tree with a few friends around him while everybody's gambling for his clothes. If that's health and wealth, they're selling the wrong stuff. The problem is, as Americans, we've got this idea that Christianity makes us comfortable. When biblically Christianity, in fact, look what it says. Verse 21. It's just talking about suffering, bringing favor. And then it says, verse 21, you were called to this. It's always important in English. What is the this? In the scripture, in the original language, it is very evident that this is suffering and enduring for the Lord. Now, when have you ever heard an altar call like that? 
I need every head bowed, every eye closed. How many of you tonight are willing to raise your hand and say, I am called to suffer for the Lord consistently for the rest of my life. I want you to come down front. That's what it says. Now, I'm not saying that there's not peace and there's not security and there's not love and there's not this unbelievable feeling of satisfaction in knowing the Lord. But it does say that one of the things we're called to is suffering. And in case we don't get that, it gives us the example of Jesus and says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in His steps. Wasn't it Paul that said, I want to know Christ? Not just in the power of His resurrection, but what? In the midst of His suffering. In the depth of His suffering. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, I want to know You in the depth of Your suffering? He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Look at verse 23. It's amazing. This is an amazing verse because it drives home the sinlessness of Jesus. This is the kind of thing when I'm talking with children about believing in the Lord and what sin is and they have brothers or sisters, I say to them, you know Jesus had brothers or sisters and he never did anything wrong or said anything wrong or thought anything wrong about them. And it blows kids' minds. This blows my mind. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he did not threaten, but committed himself to the one who judges justly. Who in history has had the ability to do away with whatever was troubling him? Jesus. Right? I mean, if he wanted at any moment... I mean, think about how ridiculous it is that there are people that he created yelling crucify him and he sits there and just takes it. You ever had anybody say anything bad about your kids or your spouse or you? And you feel that, you know, your posture starts changing, right? You get defensive. You ever been in an argument with somebody and the whole time they're talking, you're thinking of the better comeback to come back to them with? Anybody ever done that? No, we don't ever do that, Pastor. Some of you are out there when I'm preaching thinking, well, yeah, yeah, but, but, let me, that's good, but when reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he did not threaten. Here's what, what I, I thought of. I was driving down the road today. and Sometimes when I'm driving, I listen to uh, sports talk radio. Not all the time, but sometimes. This afternoon I was driving to pick up the kids, and they have a segment apparently on Wednesday afternoons at 2 o'clock called My Primary Complaint, where people call in and just tell their primary complaint in life. Now, here's the thing. I said, listen, that is not a new idea. We call that church on Sunday morning every week. I just listened to people's complaints and thought, especially because I just reread this passage. What gets you bent out of shape? What happens that gets you to where you say something back? Or maybe you don't say something back, but you sure think it. I drove through the Wendy's parking lot the other day, and they gave me the wrong sandwich. Can you believe that? No, I'm not mean. And you know how, I mean, it's ridiculous. To, when you're outside the situation, it's ridiculous to think about how mad you get about those kind of things, right? fact they gave me a healthier sandwich now what's up with that all right i wanted a hamburger and i got a grilled chicken i mean really 
just think about how bent out of shape we become about things that really don't matter. Here's Jesus, literally with the weight of sin of the history of the world on his shoulders, and he didn't say anything back. Why? Because in suffering, he glorified the Lord. He committed himself to the one who judges justly. Here's the thing. The reason Christians can suffer when people are are hurting us, when politicians are saying things about us, the reason we don't have to jump up and declare our rights and be so mad and claim them and ruin our witness in the way that we talk about being wrong is because we know in the end God's going to win. And they may be right for a moment or a decade or a year or ten years or our lifetime, but in the end, He's right. And because we know, the reason we know that is because of verse 24 and following, because Christ bore our sins in His body on that tree so that, having died to sin, we can live for righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 53. We had gone astray like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. The point Peter is making is, listen, the reason you can endure suffering is because we know God wins. And here's what he's also saying. If by suffering the sinless one glorified God, what makes you think suffering's not good enough for you or below you to glorify God? I saw a video today by a preacher, a guy named John Piper online, and it was, uh, it was one of those that I watched and I actually thought about showing, but I thought, it's so shocking. I don't know that I can show it because I'm dealing with it. And he's talking about the prosperity gospel. And he says, the problem with this is dangerous. He said, because how many people have ever said to you, boy, you serve God and you got a BMW, then let me serve that God. He said, that doesn't happen. He said, but when you stand up underneath the weight, and he used an example from one of his church members, of someone hitting your car and your daughter going through the windshield and dying. And you say in the midst of that that God is enough. That is what brings people to say, I want that. Yesterday was the four-year anniversary of my mother-in-law's death. Here's what I remember about her illness, which... Um, lasted a, a couple of years. I remember the, the first Thanksgiving she was diagnosed. Um, it's our first year here. Um, actually, no, that's wrong. First Thanksgiving she was diagnosed was a little longer than that before we came here. Um, and that Thanksgiving, uh, the family all had Thanksgiving meals. She was in the hospital and had surgery, and I went to the hospital and sat with her during the Thanksgiving meal. She didn't, I mean, you know, it's a hospital Thanksgiving meal, and she had had surgery, she couldn't eat. But we had about 10 minutes of conversation. Didn't have a long conversation, she was resting. And I just said, Marilyn, you doing okay? You know, I mean, I, I used to joke with people, when the Jet Clan would go to Paducah, I was the least person anybody wanted to see. Everybody wanted to see Susan and David and Steve and the boys, and oh, the daughter-in-law, oh, yeah, Lyle's coming too, all right? So... Marilyn and I had these moments where we'd have really good conversations, and I, I just said, you're doing okay. She said, Lyle, she said, I am. And she said, you know, a lot of people have wondered if I'm going to question God about this. And she said, here's my thing. 
why is the Jet family too good to have cancer? She said, we're not. But then she said, I'm not going to give. And if you've heard Phil preach in the last few years, he says this, and she meant it. I'm not going to give Satan one minute of this cancer. And she fought for over a year. We were joking a couple of days ago even um, about her last few days. I mean, we Denise that does the speaking for our women's event came in. And, and Denise is just one of those that could make Marilyn laugh. And in those last few days, Marilyn sat with her and laughed. Um, Marilyn was a big Karen Kingsbury fan. Well, some of you may have read some of Karen Kingsbury's books. She's a novelist. Marilyn loved her books. And Karen Kingsbury, somebody wrote her and told her what was going on. Karen Kingsbury sent, uh, it was the finish of a novel series, and it wasn't out yet, but she sent the manuscript so that they could read it to Marilyn in her last month. And Marilyn just, she suffered, but she, I grew to respect Marilyn and her commitment to the Lord as much in those last few months as I did any other time I knew her. She served the Lord so faithfully. What Scripture says is, the reason it's okay to submit, even if we get run over and pushed around and taken advantage of and nobody listens to us, is because we know God's going to do right in the end. And because... We're just following the example of our Savior. I just wonder if some of you would be bold enough this week to pray, Lord, let me know you in the power of your resurrection, but also let me know you in the fellowship of your suffering so that I can glorify you. Let's pray.